Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hello, how you doing? Welcome to the show. This is the Other People Show. How are you? I'm Brad Listy. I'm in Los Angeles. And I am so pleased to have Mike DeCapity as my guest today. He has a new novel out on Soft Skull Press. It is called Jacket Weather. And it is superb. Mike DeCapity is also the author of a novel called Through the Windshield, a chapbook called Creamsicle Blue, and a short prose collection called Radiant Fog. These under the banner of uh, Sparkle Street Books. He's originally from Cleveland. He has lived in London and San Francisco, but has spent most of his time in New York City. And I absolutely loved Jacket Weather. In the truest sense of the term, it's a book that elicits that kind of affection. I've seen it online from other people who have read it. If you love New York City, then I think you're going to love this book. If you love food, Italian food in particular, the food writing in this novel is just excellent. If you love music, like all kinds of music, punk rock, Cuban, jazz, the Velvet Underground, uh, the sounds of New York. New York of a certain era. This book captures all of that beautifully. And perhaps most of all, if you are in any way a romantic. And I mean this in the best possible sense, not in a cloying way or a sappy way, but a romantic. If you have a little romance in you, then this book is most certainly for you. And what I find so charming about it and what makes it so original is that it's about love in middle age. And at the same time, this is not boring love. <laughs> this is not all the things that I think, you know, we can sometimes associate with middle age. Boring, unfun, normcore, tired, whatever. It's none of that. It's about love with a real sense of stakes. 
it's about love that is unexpected. Jacket Weather tells the story of two people who weren't necessarily looking for love, but it found them in middle age. These are not two 20-somethings. These are 40 and 50-somethings who have a heightened attention to the stakes that go with falling in love at a certain age. They know that they don't have forever, hence the title Jacket Weather. It's like love in autumn, you know? So what better time to have this conversation with Mike DeCapity and what better time to read his wonderful novel Jacket Weather, which is probably the most romantic book I've read this year. It is wise, it is funny, it has uh, razor-sharp writing, dialogue, it has a poetic quality, it goes down easy. I just love it. I recommend it if you're in the mood for such things. So just a few quick reminders before we get started with today's conversation. If you are a book blogger or a book critic or journalist or podcaster and you would like a review copy of my upcoming novel, Be Brief and Tell Them Everything, just email me at letters at otherppl.com. The book is coming out next May, May of 2022. Happy to put you on the galley list if you are interested. Also, this podcast is listener-supported. Please uh, support the show if you can at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. Help to sustain this show so that I can continue to do this work and so the podcast can continue to live. Patreon.com slash otherpplpod. You can support the show for as little as $1 a month. Throw $3 in the hat. Whatever you can do. $5. There are different tiers, different levels of support. As you move up the scale... You can get stuff, a t-shirt, a tote bag, a sticker, a coffee mug, a book, a book club subscription. I will write you a postcard. I will wish you a happy birthday. All that stuff at patreon.com slash other PPL pod. This podcast also has its own YouTube channel. Did you know that? The Other People with Brad Listy YouTube channel. Search for it by name over at YouTube, Other PPL the entire archive of this show, more than 700 episodes and counting, is on YouTube. It's all available, free. Go get it. Go to YouTube, subscribe to the Other People YouTube channel. It's free. Click the subscribe button. And last but not least, if you are a person who uses the Other People with Brad Listy app, and uh, just so you know, if you don't know, the Other People podcast has its own official app. It, too, is free. It's available wherever you get your apps. There were some changes in Apple's app policy. So if you have an iPhone and the app has been glitchy for you, please know that we got that fixed. The tech department got down to business and fixed it. And all you have to do to alleviate any glitches is to delete the app from your device and then go to the app store and re-upload it. It's free. When you do the re-upload, you'll get the updated version and there should be no problems. 
So just a little tech update for the app in case it has been giving you problems. Apologies for that. It was out of our hands. It was an Apple thing. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. All right, so let's get to it, shall we? Mike DeCapity is the guest. It's got a new novel out. It is called Jacket Weather. Available now from Soft Skull Press. There's nothing easy about this. You know, I, I if I look, if I open up the book myself, I think, I, I myself think, oh, wow, this is amazing that I just sat down and wrote this. But I never, you know, I didn't sit down and write it. I mean, I don't know how many times I covered this kitchen table with three by five cards, you know, with a, with one line on each one to remind me about us, what a segment consisted of, a segment of the book, and rearranged and photographed and, you know, it's a it's a lot of work. So you know you shouldn't look at somebody else's work and think that it came easily and and wonder why it doesn't come easily to you. It's you know it's a pain in the ass. Yeah, oh, and and that's actually a, a interesting insight. You use three by five cards to to kind of like visually structure it for yourself. Yeah, or smaller. I I cut them up like maybe it maybe more like an 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 inch by two inches, with just a couple of words to remind me what to remind me what a segment consists of okay and i think the point that i was driving at a minute ago is that you can have all these threads you can have all these golden moments you can have uh done all this labor to sort of capture the stuff of your life but if you're going to render it into a book that's going to be as enjoyable as your book is to read you have to be telling a story there has to be a dramatic question that's driving the text. I think it's the, you know, Arjun and Mike going to wind up together was driving it for me. Like what's going to happen there? Um, maybe to a lesser extent, what's going to happen in Cleveland, what's going to happen with the guys at the gym, but there is that central thread. And it's just a good reminder that you, you know, you have to have that somehow. And if you're, if you're just going through your journal and I don't know, snatching bits and pieces here and there but there's no like really strong central thread i think it's going to be hard to make a a book of it um or harder i should say do you do you agree or disagree i don't know it's a great question um 
you know, the, the, the question of whether or not these two are going to wind up together to me is not, is not, uh, is not really a question because although a lot of people who read this book don't notice this, it's sort of given away, um, early on that, that the little segments that you're reading are from a whole, are from 10 years, right? You know, so at the end, it's like a red herring, you know, the, the conflict that, that one feels one needs in a novel. You know, the first thing that you feel in this book is that the conflict is whether or not these two are going to be together, right? That's the question you want answered. That's, that's the thing that they're dealing with. That's the thing that Mike is dealing with, right? But eventually it turns out that that's just a red herring. The thing that they're dealing with is the thing that we're all dealing with, which is that they're going to die. Right. You know, hence the title again, hence the title jacket weather, which is a euphemism for mortality to me. So whether, whether or not it needs a plot, however spare, I'm not sure that what's key, what keeps you turning the pages in this book is that you want to find out what happens between these two. I think it might just as easily be something about the the formatting of the book into these short segments so that when you open it, there's nothing intimidating about it, right? It's, not, it's never a commitment. You know, you can open it for a minute. <laughs> you can open it on the bus. You can open it wherever. And you know that you, you know, you can read it for a minute and close it again. But because it's all broken up into these little pieces, it's, I think it's just sort of like eating popcorn. I don't, I don't, I think it's as much, I think it's as much to do with the formatting as with, you know, the book's merits. I think that's the secret of this. <laughs> I think the secret is in this formatting. Yeah. It's, but it's like deceptively simple. It's one of those, you know, it's one of those things that tricks you into thinking it's easy to do. Uh, and just because they're short doesn't mean they don't, like cut deep like there's some no they have to be there i mean there there can't be any fat on it right one of the first things that you need to know if you're reading something is that the person writing it knows what he or she is doing right i mean there's a it's very easy to you have to have a kind of authority right if if you can't just feel like you a reader can't just feel like you're just like you don't know what you're doing and you're just going to take them anywhere otherwise it's like you're sitting in a bar and someone comes and just starts talking to you and you don't know how you're going to get away from this person right right yeah it's a book that kind of teaches you how to read it as you go like i you know you 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 kind of just get thrown right into it there's the a very strong voice a very strong like new york sensibility um that i feel on the page that i loved this is another aspect of the book that I think we haven't touched on yet, but I think is so central is that this is in addition to being uh, a love story about Mike and June, it's also a love story about Mike and June and New York city. It's very affectionate portrait of New York. And it may, it's the kind of thing, you know, you get, you, you listen to a great song or you read a great book about something like I'm nostalgic for New York now. <laughs> you know, like I'm nostalgic for your right. life in New York. It, like, it really brought that home to me and it's just beautifully done. And it also is peopled with people or with characters who feel just very quintessentially New York to me. Um, 
but not in a stock way. You know what I'm saying? Like it just yes. felt it just <clears throat> felt super authentic and uh, true to life, and it was fun to read. Well, you know, New York used to be kind of synonymous with authenticity. Things about it have changed, and so it's not all so much like that anymore. But it used to it used to feel like if something happened in New York, it was more real than if it happened anywhere else. Um, for me, anyway, New York was always synonymous with authenticity, and uh, you know, you still you still find that here. I do. Yeah, I mean, I don't think it's completely gone. I think it's changed. I think there's a great se uh, sequence in the book where Mike is sort of bemoaning like how he doesn't recognize the skyline anymore. You know, we see these sorts of changes, especially if you live in a place long enough. I had that feeling yesterday because we went out of town for the day. And when we came back through the Lincoln Tunnel, you know, you're up high. And so you get a glimpse of the city from the, from the top of this, you know, ridge or palisade or whatever. And again, I, I, it was startling to me not to recognize that skyline anymore because there are these buildings that just look like mistakes, you know, or as I call them in the book, redactions. Right. It's like somebody just put a big black piece of tape on the sky. I uh, would be remiss, too, if I did not talk about uh, how wonderfully you write about food in the book. This is another element. And this is tied to the guys at the Y uh, you know, Lou and Philly, and there's all this talk about food, all, you know, Italian food usually, uh, and cooking and how to prepare things. And I'm, <laughs> I'm imagining you like to cook. I do, yeah. But not in any kind of a fancy way, just because I've always cooked because I figured that that's a, something that a person should know how to do, right? So I've, uh, um, so I've, you know, I'm not, I'm not a fancy cook at all. Mike, I got to say, by my measure, you are a fancy cook. <laughs> if, you, if you saw what I cook, you'd be like, I am, you'd feel like, uh, you know, Jose Andres or whatever. Like the, uh, the food writing, though, and the food elements of the book feel very much of a piece with this notion of Jacket Weather being a love story, a love story between Mike and June, a love story between Mike and June in New York City, a love story between Mike and June and life itself. It or is Mike a, and life itself. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's like a celebration of the best sensual uh, aspects of life. And it is unapologetic in its sentiment. Like, it's a little sentimental, like in the best way, you know, in the way that I think all of us are in our more thoughtful, aware moments when we look around and appreciate our lives and go, oh. You know, it's all going. <laughs> I have this very much. I'm very much attuned to yes. the impermanence of this existence and just the speed of life, you know. And I I think one of the reasons I love this book so much is that I get excited when I feel like a writer has kind of captured in amber <laughs> the these great parts of his or her existence because then it's fixed, at least insofar as anything can be in this life. You know, like you did it, like you, you got it, like you, you, you got it in, in the amber before it, before it turned into dust and nothingness. You know what I'm saying? I know exactly what you mean. And I feel that not only about my own work, but of course, as we all do, I think I feel that about other people's work. You know, if you see some, if you read a line that 
where somebody just gets it or you know it could be a painting could be where whatever um you feel like okay that's you know that's a point for us that's one thing that uh that's that's a that's a score for us against death right i mean don't you feel that way too when you write something uh, you know that 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 you get just right it's it's our it's our only weapon yeah i i think so i think that uh I guess it has something to do with the fact that it's autofiction and it felt very much like taken from the stuff of your life. Like, you know, like taken from your journal and then rendered into a fiction, but close to the bone. Mm -hmm. Maybe I felt extra emotional about it because it seemed like it had that real feeling, that authentic feeling. Sometimes when I read, and this is something that I think you allude to in the book, you know, at that poetry reading scene where Mike is bemoaning the academic nature of the, of the poet, you know, who's not really risking much mm -hmm. is that I feel like when I read stuff, even if it's beautifully rendered, it feels like a shield to me. It feels like some sort of elaborate artifice that the, uh, that the writer has constructed around himself or herself yeah, as a kind of way of, of, uh, protecting oneself from have from exposure. And your book does the exact opposite. That's what I look for in art is that you're tearing down, uh, the shields, you know, you're tearing down defenses and you're just laying it out there. And I don't know, I feel a, a much greater sense of emotional connection to work like that. I mean, like it possible that I'm just expressing my taste, but it, it, it spoke to me and. Well, that's what I wanted to do. I'm, so I'm glad, I'm glad you feel that way. Cause that's what I wanted to do. I, I, even though it's about me, I don't, as I said, I, I didn't set out to write a book about myself. I just used the materials that I had, right? I want to play. I want to make a place for you to come. You know, in the same way that when you see a movie, or not when you see a movie, but the kinds of movies that you go back to over and over again, you go back to because there's something in the light or the season at that you know in which that movie is set, or the scenes between people. Those are the important things, right? About a about about a movie that you that, that allow you to go back and watch it over and over again, right? I want this book to be reread. You know, I want it to, people to be able to think of this as a as a place they can go. You know, if you re you read this book during the autumn, right? So maybe next year you'll think about it at the, during the autumn. You know, this will be the you know you'll think back about this is this is the autumn that I read that book. You know. I don't know, maybe because I find that I tend to think about the same sorts of music, you know, you know, recurrently every year. You know, there are certain records that I listen to in September. You know, there are certain records that I listen to in October um, or movies that I want to watch at certain times of year. So I'm, uh, you know, I would like this book to find its way into people's rotation, I guess. I'm curious to know about the dialogue in the book and if the way that you captured it was entirely like hand to page or if you actually recorded audio because it is so good like were you did you have your phone out were you like like kind of quietly recording people because it's just spot on dialogue in a way that felt extra to me i didn't uh record any of the guys at the gym those are uh conversations that i wrote down probably shortly after being at the gym or, you know, uh, combined, collapsed a couple of different conversations, those kinds of things. 
I may have recorded Jane uh, at some point. There's a long conversation with Jane that I, uh, where Jane and Mike and June are in a car driving through Times Square. I think it, I think it's in the August section of the book. That may have I, I recorded that, um, but I, I didn't record anybody else. Although I've done that extensively before, and I wrote a novel called Through the Windshield that uh, uh, about a character named Ed, a person named Ed, um, and I recorded his stories, and you still have to work at them a little bit, you know, but but not in this book so much. So you've said a couple of times that... You know, you weren't setting out to write a book about yourself. You were trying to make a place for you. And by you, you were meaning the reader. I think this is a really important point to underline, especially when it comes to working in an autofiction mode. The work tends to fail when it's too inwardly focused and like navel-gazy. It's easy, I think, to forget sometimes that you're writing for a reader. <laughs> you know, it could be, I mean, at least I'm speaking for myself. Sometimes I can get too mired in my own, my own stuff, you know? And it's like, Oh wait, I'm actually trying to communicate with somebody. That's a really important point to remember. Well, you know, I do a lot of readings. I mean, I don't do a lot of them, but I do several a year. And so when you're looking for something to read to an audience, there are only certain kinds of things that, that really are going to work, right? They have to have a kind of, they have to sort of be in the present tense if it's going to work in front of an audience. An audience doesn't want to listen to um, any kind of extrapolation or um, expository writing, I mean. So I tried to keep that at a minimum. There really isn't much inward gazing in this book. Even when Mike is talking about his feelings and uh you know kind of how messed up he is at the be- at, in the early part of this book there's not much psychology in it he tends to i tend to describe things the way they feel to me physically you know when he first meets june and he's he can't sleep and he feels like throwing up i mean that's the kind of description that, that there is in the book, you know, <laughs> right. he can't eat. He feels like there's, it's like a tab of acid coming on. There's not much psychology in the book. I always try and keep in mind that I, I never want to forget that there's a reader because if there's not a reader, I don't have to write the book, you know, or not that I don't have to write a book, but it would be a different book if I were write, just writing it for myself, probably. Sure. Um, I, I, I kind of want it to be everybody's book. I don't want it to be a book about me. Uh, I felt that. I mean, I felt I'm thinking too, like, I'm, first of all, I'm thinking about how, you know, um, engrossed I was and how much I kind of wanted to hang with those characters. You know, it's that kind of book where you're right. like, oh, I love, I want to be at the Y and like hanging out, like sitting there talking to these. Like, Well, then I've succeeded. That's yeah. exactly what I wanted. Yeah, they're just great characters. And I wanted to hang with you and June and Jane, like just a lot of fun, you know, a lot of fun and a lot of like laughs. And and then this love story. I felt very strongly when I met June that there seemed to be barely enough time left for us. So I want to try and I want to try and capture that feeling. 
the you know which makes it even more intense i mean that's sort of what makes autumn so intense right is because because everything's dying right and everything kind of flares up before it dies so uh yeah i was conscious of trying to capture that it kind of that's that extra intensity that you feel because i suppose every uh love feels a little different at 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 different times of your life right you don't think so much about time as an element or as an enemy when you're fall in love at 25 you're not thinking about that or even when you fall in love at 40 but if you fall in love close to 50 and especially in my case when I just didn't I wasn't looking for this didn't it wasn't expecting it in fact I was sort of hoping it would never happen <laughs> you know so that's one that's one of the things that I wanted to capture and I also wanted to capture the um this idea that all your ideas about it go out the window as soon as you as soon as as soon as you meet somebody that that you feel that way about right whatever it was that you predicted for yourself whatever regimen you thought you were putting yourself on you know whatever you know book list you expected to complete by the time you died or you know whatever plans you had for yourself go out the window the minute you meet somebody you know and this becomes the urgent the urgent thing in your life that that sort of makes everything else look a little insubstantial. There's a wonderful way that you depict Mike as in the especially I mean all throughout the book, but especially as it's coming on, how like even though he's in his late forties, this starts to happen. He meets June, he starts to have feelings and like he's basically like 17 years old <laughs> like a speed freak or something yeah. you just can't sit still you yeah exactly i mean i think there's a line in it that's like you know i don't remember the line but I, basically that i feel the same at 55 that i or 50 that i did at 15 yeah I, is that true for everybody probably right i would imagine i think like yeah i don't think because I don't think, and I think you say this on the page, uh, you know, you don't age on the inside. Yes. You know, like our bodies physically age, but we, you know, I don't feel, I'm 46. I don't feel 46 inside. I probably feel the same that I did when I was 15. Right, it, right. You know, and uh, that's why I think it can be weird to look at yourself in the mirror as you get older. You're like, damn, like, you know, I don't feel any different on the inside. And yet look at my outer form. Right, you don't walk down the street thinking, "Here's forty-six-year-old Brad going down the street." No, no. Um, and you know, I'm thinking more about the ways that you kind of describe the emotional experience. Like you said, there's not a lot of psychology in the book, which I didn't realize till you said it, but that's true. In fact, I think isn't there? There's a there's a part in the book where several people suggest to Mike that maybe it's time he sees somebody, see a psychologist right. and he goes, you know, for one visit or something and doesn't, uh, it doesn't take. So it's not, not just that there is very little psychology. It's almost anti-psychology. And, you know, you're talking, I can't remember if you're talking to Terry. I think probably Mike is talking to Terry in this scene, but you know, you, you you kind of uh, mentioned something along these lines a bit ago, how you sort of describing the raw emotion 
and like the physical aspect of it, you know, like in a kind of um, vernacular. It's not like, you know, you're not getting Freudian about it. And you're talking about, um, you know, how this how this is making you crazy. You know, your obsession, your romantic obsession is making you crazy and you compare it to feeling like a werewolf, <laughs> you <laughs> right, know, right. and I, that really hit home. You know, you're like, oh God, here comes the full moon. I'm going to turn into <laughs> right. a freak, you know, an animal again. And, um, right. you know, I think maybe doing it that way resonates more and gets truer to life than if you were to sort of tease it apart in the manner of some kind of uh, clinician or something, you know. Well, and, and that also gets at the, you know, the force with which, I, have you ever spent all morning working on something, trying to, trying to say something right on the page? And then, uh, you know, you leave the house and you talk to somebody and it just, you just get it like that. You just, you just put it into words very easily without even thinking about it in the most, you, you, you express it in the most forceful way that you, that it can be expressed simply through speech, right? I mean, it, the words come naturally to us when we're speaking. So that's something that I'm always concerned with. I, I really want this to feel like someone, I want it to be intimate and I want it to be like someone speaking. It doesn't have to be in the rhythm of my speech. It just has to be sort of with with the emotional force of speech. Yes. Which is something that I read about when I was, you know, when I was uh, writing this book of journals that I told you about. I was very careful because I was writing about people who were my friends, and these are people who are seeing what I'm writing. So I, at that age, at 18, my idea was that a writer should be honest. And my idea of honesty was that he should be objective or fair. Then I read Celine and realized that he was much more honest being subjective so anyway, uh, there's a lot of things that I love about Celine, and there are a lot of ways in which Celine's writing affected me. But later on, uh, they, a, a university press, I can't remember which press, published a, a book of interviews with Celine. And he talks about this. I think he calls it the, I think he calls it the emotive subway. But the idea is that the important thing is to write with the emotional power or force of speech. You don't, you don't have to reconstruct the rhythms of someone's speech. It's just you have to say things with the directness of speech. And so that's something I try to do. Yeah, that is uh, very well put and speaks to um, my experience reading Celine. <laughs> First of all, like Journey to the End of the Night had a massive effect on me. I was telling me too. A, I was telling a friend about this and I was like trying to place myself in time. And I always have to like, you know, I always feel like I have to asterisk Celine by noting that he was like a, an anti-Semite. And, right, of course. You know, controversy on all the rest. But I think if you read the early books in particular, there's so much humanity in them, so much dark comedy and this like wonderful aliveness that 
Right. I think part of it, I think part of my fascination with it was I was like, wow, this is a book that was written in like 19 or published in 1932 or something. Exactly. And it reads like it was written yesterday. Totally. Because of that energy. I mean, part of it is I think the translation, maybe if you read it in French, it would seem more dated or something, but it just seems so immediate. And I was wondering why. And then it definitely felt like that, that the force of the spoken, the, that, that verbal, um, authenticity and just that feeling with the authors like talking to you there's nothing literary about it yeah i don't mean that there's no artifice or art involved but there's nothing literary about it he's talking right to you like a person sitting next to you right yeah i mean i feel that same way about dylan you know i feel i feel the same way about both of those guys celine is capable of the most extraordinary, beautiful images, but he, he never, in fact, he goes kind of out of his way not to phrase them in a literary way. It's always like he's just talking. It's like he's, it's always feels like he just threw a card down on a table and there it is. And and then the, the ellipses, you know, he's famous for the use of ellipses to sort of, uh, I think like signify the kind of gaps in thought, you know, these pauses that we have internally as we're trying to formulate thoughts. And it's kind of like footwork, I think, you know, like a box, like a boxer, you know, he's sort of setting you up, you know, for a, for a jab yeah. <laughs> a little bit. Yeah. I, I just read, I don't know if you read this story in the New York times a couple of days ago. June just sent it to me. I didn't read it yet about these lost manuscripts. Yeah, like, that have been... like 6,000 words of lost Celine manuscripts. And I want to say at least part of it is his like more complete story of World War I. Um, ah, which... oh, that sounds very interesting. I didn't even know he wrote more about that. Yeah, that's what I mean. Because Journey is the book that has to do with world war one and his war experience, right. but uh, among other things, but, uh, yeah. So I'm just like, okay, I'm that, that interests me, uh, to see if, you know, what, what he put down. And I don't know when exactly they were written. It might be in the article. I don't know if I can't recall, but I hope they get somebody really good to translate it because a lot depends on that. Ralph Mannheim. You know, there's a couple, yeah, but he's gone. He's he's not alive anymore. I don't think. Oh, okay, I was going to say he whoever who, he translate. I I remember his name as the translator. Oh of Journey. yeah, no, he's he's the guy. Of course, yeah. he's the guy. Also, the Jack, uh, the Bernard Freckman and Jack T. Nile translation of Guignol's Band is very good. Oh, it is okay. But uh, you know, you sometimes when you read the, read his work in by other translators, it you know it's just not as sharp. It doesn't have the same. It doesn't have the same snap. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, the whole revolution in the time that he published it was that he was using the French Argo. He was he was writing in the in the language of like the the streets, the streets of the French streets or the Parisian streets of that particular era. And so, in a kind of stylized way, though, at least that's my understanding of it. That the, that that Argo that he was using was already a little old, or uh, a little out of date at the time, you know? Yeah. So I just, it makes me wonder, like, I, I don't, I speak a little French, but I could never read the original text in French and have it make sense. I wonder what that experience is like for a native French speaker. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. I'm curious about that too. Sure. Um, what about music? Because as I've said more than once, there's a musical, um, feeling to the book. There's a great rhythm. 
I'm wondering if you write to music. I'm wondering if there, I mean, there's a, and there's also a lot of musical references in the book. You know, June is a long time, uh, what flack in the music industry and, you know, both of you guys, uh, both Mike and June and, you know, all their crew in New York, you know, there's lovers of music, been to a lot of live shows. And so all that's in there is, right. is listening to music, something that filters into your writing process. Oh yeah. 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 I listen to a lot of music while I write sometimes just, uh, as background music and sometimes in a deliberate way because a piece of music captures something that I something ephemeral, you know, something elusive that I, that I'm chasing. And I feel like if I play that song enough, you know, I was just writing about some of these songs. There's a website called large hearted boy oh, that yeah. publishes, you know, that site. Oh, well, sure. David, Kata uh, David Katowski. Am I right? Yeah. Right. Um, so they pu publish webs, uh, playlists by writers that have to do with their books. And so I wrote about, I made a playlist for Jacket Weather and then wrote about, I picked about 20 songs from it. And some of those songs were, oh, well, one of them in particular was um, a, a guitar piece that I just, that seemed to capture something that I wanted, that I wanted for the book um, about an incident that I was trying to describe. And I felt like it was locked in this song. And if I played this song over and over enough while I, while writing this piece, you know, I would, I would be able have access to it. So sometimes I use, I use music in that way. And sometimes I just am listening to it because, and, and I suppose there must be something about the principles of the aesthetic principles of music that I really love that, um, you know that I'm tr that I'm trying to mirror, you know, in a way, not always in a deliberate way, but, um, yeah, you know, the more musical the better. You have a good ear. Uh, I would say that this is tied to how I felt about the dialogue, how like unusually sharp the dialogue was, and how good it how good it is at capturing dialect. Mm -hmm. uh, are you a good mimic? Uh, I don't know. I don't know if I am. Maybe. <laughs> I mean, can, but can you do accents and stuff? Like, can you? Oh no, or impressions? Not. Probably, probably not. Probably not. Um, no, I'm not so good at that. June is very good at that, actually. Um, no. <laughs> but you're right in that I do feel that uh, that you can capture someone's essence if you pay close enough attention to to what they say and how they say it and if you get to your journal quickly enough <laughs> right <laughs> i used to keep one in the locker at the you know in my locker at the gym i just remembered that i forgot that i used to have a notebook in there so you know sometimes i just wrote things down right at the gym oh good i was gonna it feels <laughs> that way it feels that way i'm like damn how did he get this you know it's just it's so, uh, it's so real, realer than real is how I always say it. And, um, another part before I move on from music, because it's a process question and it's actually a question I should ask more, but because you allude to it in the book, it comes to mind. And that is, uh, smoking pot and listening to music and writing or smoking pot and writing. 
Is that something you do? It's something I don't, I don't, I don't do it a lot because I would weigh 240 pounds. Yeah. (laughs) You know, if I, if I smoke any weed or eat an edible or any of that kind of thing, I just eat until I go to bed. So I would do it probably more if, you know, if, if not for that, I find it's very good for editing and, um, I find that it makes the obvious it helps me see the obvious which is harder for me to see otherwise makes things and it also it enables me to see anything that's a little specious or anything that's fake or 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 not quite right it 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 helps me I, i feel like it helps me make 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 the writing more real more, 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 uh, more authentic, I suppose. Hmm. I don't, that's not exactly the word I want. It's not authentic, but, uh, I don't know if I'm, I'm not, for some reason I'm drawing a blank on what it, maybe, maybe I should maybe smoke, you smoke some weed I was going to say, we're going to take a break and let Mike get really high. We'll come back in a minute and he'll have it, but, uh, <laughs> No, I get it though. And I'm actually interested because I, I'm, you know, I have fantasies about being what I call an elegant stoner. Uh, mm-hmm. I think maybe I missed my window. I either don't have the neurochemistry or I'm too old or some combination of both. I can do it every once in a while, but I, you know, if I do it too much, I just, you know, I become inert or something like it's, it's not, or I just, like you say, you're just in the kitchen, like eating yeah, ice cream or whatever, and right. Um, I think that's everybody's experience, though, and it's probably everybody's experience with everything, right? You shouldn't do anything habitually. I mean, it loses its it loses its luster, right? If you do it all the time, if you do anything all the time, well, except maybe go to the gym. You got to go to the gym. Go to the Y and get your exercise. That's good to do. Well, you got to go to the gym because you got to hear what those guys are talking <laughs> about, <laughs> right? <laughs> um, the point that I would make is that I find it interesting that you would find pot helpful for editing. I think maybe at first blush, uh, it might be easy to think, you know what I'll do when you're just drafting, when you just need to kind of loosen up or get some cool ideas, but no, like you do that hard labor sober and you get the manuscript into some form and then maybe you smoke pot and take a look at it and it makes it, you're coming at it from a new angle. That actually makes, yes. there's a good logic to that because especially when you spent that much time with the text, you know, like it can start to, you can develop blind spots or whatever, you know, you can, I can't see it clearly because I'm too close to it and I've been immersed in this thing. So that's when you should smoke some weed. And Especially if you're in a jam of some kind, if there's a piece that, you know, that you've been working on and working on and for whatever reason, you don't know what the reason is, but you can't get it right or it just isn't quite right for some reason. It doesn't, doesn't have the impact that you want it to have. And that's, that's a time when, when I find it very helpful to smoke a little weed. You know, the other thing that it does that I'm just realizing now, it sits me there. I'm not trying to get in and get out. I'm not afraid to be there. I don't feel any of the kind of, um, you know, fear that, for instance, I used to smoke cigarettes and 
cigarettes are perfect to keep you seated there because there's nothing more pleasant than smoking cigarettes and sitting at a typewriter or a computer and, uh, you know, you get into kind of a little jam, any kind of a little thing, you know, by fear, I'm just saying, I don't know how to finish this sentence, or I don't know what the right word is, or this is a complicated, this, there's some kind of thing here that I'm afraid to address in the text. So you light a cigarette, and then, you know, then you come back at it from another angle. But you're always... It's never easy to sit there. It's it's just not. It's not easy to sit at a at a typewriter or a computer. But if you smoke weed, you're kind of happy to be there, right? Get some music on. Trying, you get some music right. playing. It's the best. Right. What what could be better? Right. <laughs> you writing late at night, or what time do you do you have time? So it seems like you kind of write all the time, but yeah, but mostly in the morning. Mostly in the morning when I'm fresh and when words are fresh, I work as a copy editor. So I'm using words all day and I'm using them because I talk. And so they're kind of stale for me by the end of the day. So that's another thing that weed is good for or alcohol, but you know, you can't drink and write a novel because you got to, you know, it's something you have to work at every day. So that becomes problematic um, over the course of writing a novel or it did for me. And your day job as a copy editor. Yeah. Interesting. So your your copy must have been pretty clean on your book when it came through, right? I mean, you're copy editing your own work as you go. I mean, you must be. Yes, probably. But it didn't stop me from making more and more changes every time they sent me a new, you know, a new version of it. Even after I had, I think the version that they accepted, the publisher, by the time they accepted the book, I was probably on the fifth or sixth or seventh draft. And you know, they go through it and you go back and forth with the editor. But even on the very last draft, like a month before it was going to go to print, I think I sent them 70 pages worth of changes. Wow. 70 pages on which there were changes. I should say that. It's not 70 pages of changes. It's just 70 pages on which I changed at least a word or a comma. It's amazing how you, it's almost bottomless. At some point you just got to walk away. I'm going through that right now where I'm just like, fuck, I missed that. I can't believe I missed that. Like, right. Like, thank God I caught it, you know? <laughs> like, right, right. Uh, I don't know. And then there's also the concern of like, am I changing things that don't need to be changed? You know, like, am I noodling with it beyond the point where it should be noodled with? And Totally. And, and, you, and eventually you can't even trust the, your perceptions because you, you know you've already, you wrote this paragraph to your heart's content you finally got it right and now here you are finding fault with it three months later what's to say that you're you know that what you decide today is going to stand i always think of there's a story about the painter bonard being thrown out of a museum for touching up one of his paintings you know i mean that's to me an example of how you're just never finished with anything you got to let it go yeah and that's that's the that's one of the big advantages of having something published, because otherwise, how do you move on? You can just tinker around with something forever. So, can I ask you a copy editing question? Sure. Pure curiosity. Uh, I'm always wondering, like, how a, a good copy editor does that work? Like the the concentration that it must take. I feel like there must be systems. Like, I'm imagining having a pen. And like literally physically tapping each word as I go, reading it aloud, 
Um, do you know what I'm saying? Or is this just something that comes naturally to you? Like you can focus in, if I had to copy edit my, my book or someone else's book, I feel like I would need like a, a checklist or something to go through of all the different things I'm supposed to be vetting it for. And, um, I don't know. It's... Well, you would, you would make a, you would make a style sheet, for instance, how you're going to treat numbers in this book, when you're going to spell numbers out and when you're going to style them as numerals. You know, I made a, a style sheet for, for, for jacket weather. Um, every magazine has its own house style guide, right? Whether they use serial commas or not. Um, you know, there's all kinds of things that, that, that you never even think about. Uh, well, one thing that's made copy editing more difficult in the last couple of years is that I'm working remotely, so it's much easier to catch things on a page. But I, really what you're talking about is proofreading because, right, I mean, you're talking about what, copy editing is a little more uh, like rewriting sentences that don't quite work or fixing grammatical mistakes, that kind of thing. Right. You know, it's proofing i don't know how people do that it's i mean i'm supposed to be doing that but it's hard to do with a, uh it's hard to do it on a screen yeah and the people i know who are really good at it do make a little mark over every word okay that makes sense to me i just the meticulousness of it and like feeling like you're the last line of defense you know like you're the, right. the buck stops with you on a piece of text it's a lot of pressure you know like yes you got to really be confident in your ability to focus yes I want to talk to you about routines. Um, we all have them, maybe especially as we age. I think you kind of develop them as you go through life, like as a bulwark against, I don't know, the, all the different insanities of life. But uh, especially for a book like this that's drawn from journals, drawn from the stuff of your life as we keep talking about. What I sense is like, well, this is Mike's routine. He's got, he goes to work, he goes to the gym. He goes out to meet June for lunch or dinner or, you know what I'm saying? Like, and they repeat. And I think like one of the worries that I have personally about the book that I'm working on is, is that I, I joke. I'm like, I'm so fucking boring. I do the same shit every day. And what I loved about your book uh, is that it made me realize that like, it's okay like it can be totally captivating to read about somebody's routines in life. We all have them. Like Yeah, the only thing important is how how something is written. You can write about anything. I mean, if it's well written, it's worth reading. It's not it doesn't Otherwise, only people with the most extreme stories would be worth reading, but usually those people are not worth reading because what it has to be well written, you know? And if you write well enough, you can write about nothing. You can write about you, you can write about watching the sunlight on the wall. Yeah. It's like these repeating, uh, the repeating patterns of our lives, you know, like, uh, and the comfort that I draw from routine, you, you know, it's almost like, a, like met expectations. Like I know what I'm going to do. I have a system that keeps me on a relatively even keel. I kind of think you must get this from going to the gym. Um, well, it's not for me. It's, it wasn't, it's not all the same. The process is, is different at the be. For instance, I spent a couple of years, right? This is not taken from journals so much as written in pieces. When I gave up smoking cigarettes, 
I felt like I could no longer, I, I couldn't bring myself to come and sit at, at a table. You know, I couldn't bring myself to come and sit at a table with a typewriter anymore. It was just too, I, there was nothing to keep me there. Nothing to keep me seated there without cigarettes. So I said, I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm not going to have any routines. I'm just going to write wherever I am in the street. I'm going to sit down on a standpipe and write a couple of lines if I've seen something or if I remember something. So, And I had a kind of idea that eventually when I had enough of these little pieces, they would all sort of coalesce into a, into a book. And then after doing that for two or three years, I realized this is never going to coalesce. I mean, I have to take charge of this thing, right? I have to, I, now I have to have a routine. So what's my routine going to be? How am I going to keep my ass on the couch here, uh, you know, long enough to do this every morning? So I started in lieu of cigarettes, I started playing computer solitaire. <laughs> which is really perfect. It's the, it's, it's a perfect substitute for cigarettes because it's, it's mindless, takes you just far out of it, just enough out of it that it changes your perception a little when you come back to address that problem that you just had, you know, whatever, whatever, whatever technical thing you're trying to solve that you, that presented a little problem to you. You play a few hands of computer solitaire. Now you come back and you solve it. Right. Um, but it's not, it doesn't take you like down a hole. Like if you went on Facebook or if you started reading the news or whatever, so it's mindless. So that became my routine. Anyway, after I decided that I, I have to put this into a draft, like you were just saying about your book, I, um, I put all those pieces into, into some kind of a draft. And after that, I worked on it every morning for however you know, I get up early and I work for a few hours in the morning before I go to the gym. And often when I'm often, if I've encountered some kind of problem, I solve it on the treadmill or at the gym or as soon as I get away, you know, that's a pretty familiar phenomenon, right? You, 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 you solve a problem in the shower that you've, you know, you haven't been able to solve on the computer. What about ratio? Like you talk about kind of you know, writing these little snapshots or whatever you want to call them, you know, from your life and amassing this pile of pages. What was the ratio like from pile to finished product? You know what I'm saying? Like how many words were you working from versus what ended up in the book? That's hard for me to estimate how, what the, 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 the total number of words that I might've been working from. But if the book is 50,000 words now, I think it's just under 50,000 words. It probably was up around 80 at some point. Okay. So, you know, one of the early drafts may have been, may have been 80 pages, 80, 80,000 words or 70,000 words. You know, I've envisioned this as a, um, as a novella. So it's already longer than I anticipated expected it to be. I thought I was going to write something that was just very slight, 120 pages, something like that. But, uh, but even as it is, I think it moves by pretty quickly. Oh, it's a, it's a great read. And I like that length, to be honest. Like I often say, like if a book goes much longer than that, it can be great. Like there's no rules, but it better have a great justification. Like it better really yeah. need it, you know, because right. 
feel like most things, even complicated things, you should be able to say in a couple hundred pages, like 200, 250 pages, I would, yeah. I would think. But, mm-hmm. um, and this book's largely atmosphere. So, I mean, how, you know, it's the right length, I think, for that kind of thing. If it were 500 pages of nothing but atmosphere, you know. <laughs> get, me the, get me the hell out of New York. I've had enough. Right. No more Italian food. <laughs> um, I want to ask you about the publication story for this book. And I feel like these kinds of stories, maybe increasingly, often have like a harrowing quality. Or for me, like a maddening quality, because you know, people will be like, oh, my God, you won't believe what I went through to get this thing published. And I'm, it'll blow my mind because I'm, I'm thinking like this is like a masterpiece. This is a great book. You know what I'm saying? And uh, I'm wondering how that part of it went for you. Like you write this book and then you go to try to find a home for it. Like what was what was that story like? I started submitting it. uh Boy, it's hard to remember now whether I was submitting it for, I might have been submitting it for a year, six months. Let's say six months. Anyway, by the time I sent it to Soft Skull, well, let me tell you this. I asked Chris Krause for, uh, if she could suggest somebody. I asked her first if she wanted to read it. I had heard that she had read some of my other work and liked it. So I asked her if she'd be willing to read this. Did you? Do you know her? No, but we have a friend in common who had recommended my work to her. And so she read the book and liked it very much and wrote me a really a nice note about it and suggested five editors which was good because I don't even want to fool around with agents. My my experience with agents is I've never been able to get an agent. And um, my experience with them is that they're more conservative even than editors because they're guessing twice. You know, they're, they're guessing for themselves whether, you know, whether they're going to be able to sell something and they're guessing what an editor might want. I think it's easier just to go to an editor if you can get a line to one. Anyway, Chris, Chris recommended Yuka Igarashi at Soft Skull and maybe four or five others. And Yuka wrote me back right away that she had received it and she was going to get right to it. That was, say, October. I'm sorry. That was August of 2019. And then I didn't hear from her. Maybe I wrote to her in early October then. Didn't hear anything back. And so then I just thought it was a dead issue. And then she wrote to me at the end of, just before Thanksgiving of that year, 2019. And said that she felt like she was the target audience for this book and that she had read it immediately in August and that she'd been thinking for four months about whether or not they were going to be able to publish it. Um, And in order to try and help her make that decision, she wanted to talk to me. 
So, you know, I mean, you think if you get an, an, an email from a, an editor who says that she is the target audience for the book, you would, you would feel like, okay, I'm in, right? So this is how difficult it is to get something published. Um, it still feels kind of like a miracle to me. Anyway, she wanted to talk about it to see whether or not, you know, probably to see if I was difficult to, you know, probably to gauge what it might be like to work with me since she was going to have to go to bat for this book to her, to the people that she answered to. And so we had a whole conversation about it. I, in talking to her, I realized immediately that she's the perfect person for this book. And I still feel that way. I really don't, because she liked the book for exactly what it was, and she wasn't going to try and make it into something else. She wasn't going to ask me to graft a plot onto the book or make it into anything that it wasn't. She she liked the book for what it was. Um, as a matter of fact, I, when I talked to her, I was on my way. I had I that afternoon I had arranged to take Jane, one of the characters in the book, to Costco after work. And I talked to Yuka so long in the front seat of my car that finally I had to go get Jane. So I turned the car on and she said, Yuka said, are you driving somewhere now? I said, well, I got to go take Jane to Costco. And she said, oh, I love Jane. <laughs> right? Yeah. Jane's great. <laughs> That's hilarious. So, <laughs> um, anyway, and even then it was, uh, so that was November of 2019. And even then it was another, it wasn't until President's Day of 2020 that I heard from her again that they were going to be able to do it. So it may seem inevitable, but it never felt that way to me. And I, and, and, and I, and I don't believe that the book would have been published without, without her. I don't think, I just, it's hard for me to imagine that someone else would have felt the way about it and kind of protected it. She also, in talking to me, she also wanted me to know that this book was going to kind of go through a machine. You know, there's a, you know, you, you know yourself, there's a, there's a, there's a sort of publicity machine and they, you know, there's a way that, that they, that they want to talk about the book, right. In order to get people's attention that may not be exactly how you feel about the book. And, um, although in this case, I love everybody that I've worked with at soft skull, everybody has, is so excited and supportive. And I did a reading last night in Hudson and Sarah Jean Grimm, the woman who does publicity for soft skull, um, came to the reading. I mean, I was very touched by that, that they, that she, uh, you know, showed up. I, I don't, I don't, I think that that experience is unusual. Yeah. Well, I mean, it also, I think it also, um, what I would say is that this is a book that elicits for those people to whom it speaks, it elicits love, like affection because it's full of so much love and affection, you know? So it's got good vibes, this book. Yeah. And I think that when someone, it resonates for somebody, it's an easy book to cheer for. Uh, I think that's, part of it and it's just a good book you know you get excited about a good book you want to go go see the guy read you know read from it and and help it along you know it's got to be fun to if you're working in publishing like not every book is going to be 
a book that really sings for you. It's just, you know, like it's math, but right, probably right. this one did, you know, especially people living in New York, you know, I, I imagine that has an added uh, impact. You know, if you've lived in New York, then this book is probably going to seem even more familiar to you. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I, I want to underline just how difficult it is to get a book published. My sense of things, and I could be wrong, but my sense of things is that it's gotten harder, uh, especially for writers of literary fiction, maybe to a little bit lesser extent, literary nonfiction. But, you know, everything you were saying about the uncertainty, the length of time you're waiting, like what I was going to say is, because the word that comes to mind is timing, like luck. (laughs) You know, sure. right person, right time. What I was thinking is that you submitted it to Yuka in August and, you know, you're sitting around going, oh, shit, it's no, it's Thanksgiving and I haven't heard from her. I'm doomed. And then I, what I was thinking you were going to tell me is that, like, actually, she read it on a beautiful fall day, you know, like, <laughs> and it was actually serendipity that she waited, you know, but it did, that, that's actually not exactly how the story played. But I just think for people listening, you know, many people out there who are listening to this show are working on a book or have a manuscript in the drawer or publish books. And, you know, uh, what I want to say is if you believe in your book and if you've really done the work, don't get discouraged if it's difficult or if there are a lot of no's because the process is so fraught, you know, like, and I feel bad for editors too. I can only imagine how many manuscripts are getting thrown at them every week that they've got to try to consider. And, you know, the odds are against you for a number of reasons, but just because it isn't happening, that doesn't necessarily mean that it's some sort of uh, accurate or official verdict on the work itself. No, you can't, you can't take it, you can't take it personally. You just have to think about it like you're playing the lottery, right? I mean, sending these, sending, sending a book out, right? I, you can't, take it personally did you take and it personally did like did you i mean it's, it's it's one thing to say that it's another thing to actually not take it personally <laughs> i i didn't i don't take individual rejections personally i after decades of not trying to of not getting anything published you know i did start to feel like uh, you know, this is just never going to happen for, this is just never going to happen for me. Um, and I, if it hadn't happened with jacket weather, I probably wouldn't have written another book cause this would have been maybe my third novel that I hadn't been able to get published. Plus other things that I haven't been able to get published. I, yeah, I have a long history of not getting published. So um, <laughs> <laughs> a long and decorated history of not, not getting published. <laughs> in fact, my father was a novelist, published two beautiful, exquisite novels at the beginning of the 60s, maybe 59 and 60 or 60 and 61. I don't I can't remember um, right before I was born and never got another another book published the whole time for the rest of his life until I published two short novels of his in one book. Uh, maybe in the nineties. So I feel like it's almost a, de- a decapity tradition to not be published. <laughs> You're carrying the mantle now. This is it. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> what about, uh, the, I mean, cause this is a book that celebrates 
um, I think Italian, I mean, Italian food, Italian ethnicity, like it had the Italian American experience in New York as it has lived in New York, like that, you know, little Italy and the different restaurants and the food culture of New York, especially the Italian food culture. Sure. I love all that. Yeah. did, Did you grow up with it? I guess would be a way in. Oh yeah. But I grew up in Cleveland, but, um, my father did all the cooking at home and my mother was estranged from most of her family because she married a non-Jew. And so I didn't have much contact with the Jewish side of my family. So, uh, um, so the, my, the Italian family was sort of all I had. What part of Italy? My grandfather was from a little village in, in Abruzzo called Rivizondoli, tiny little place. And, uh, and my grandmother's people, my grandmother was born in Cleveland, but her people were from Basilicata. Okay. And these guys at the gym, um, these are true. Uh, I think Lou is, uh, is a Sicilian descent and, um, as am I, by the way. Listy's a Sicilian name. Do you know where from? Uh, yeah, it's um, Corleone, where the. Oh uh, no, kidding! Yeah, mm-hmm. <laughs> so <Right. laughs> I mean, I, my my parents went uh, to Sicily a few years ago and went to Corleone, and they thought they were going to run into family, and apparently they went to like the Godfather Museum, and like there was a Listy who's like a docent <laughs> at the Godfather Museum, <laughs> but. The, but they, they were not working on that day, so they didn't get to like you know meet any uh, relatives. But yeah, I've never been. I got. I mean, I've been to Italy, but I haven't been to Sicily. But at some point, I got to go. Yeah, of course. I went to the little town that my grandfather was from, and a lot of people there are called Decapity. But I wasn't related to any of them, and I kept going around meeting people, you know. And I had this list of ancestors and relatives, and you know, people kept telling me, "I think you're." related to the cop, John, the cop, there were two cops in this town and we met one cop. It wasn't him. And then on our last night there, we were going down a little narrow alleyway, uh, flight of steps that led down to a piazza. So our footsteps echoed down this staircase and into the piazza. And as we were going down, a head popped around the corner at the, at the bottom of the stairs. And he said, they got it. And uh, it was the other cop, and he, we were related, and he took us back to his house and showed us pictures. And, no you way. Know, it, was, it was a very nice way to end the trip. After a week of being celebrities in this place, anyway, just for being American and being in this place where nobody ever visits because there's nothing there, really, right. to see. Right, And you got to see like photos of like old relatives and stuff. Oh, yeah. I went to the town hall, and they brought out this ledger and uh, found my grandfather, great-grandfather, Arcangelo, in there. It was noted that he was away with the sheep, you know, away with the flocks. Well, when, I, when, when his son was born, my grandfather, that was, that was a fabulous trip. Wow. That's awesome. And uh, growing up in Cleveland, uh, like, what was that like? I mean, I'm from the upper Midwest and the Midwest, so I... Have a sense. Well, of you're it. from Milwaukee, right? It's probably just like Cleveland, right? Didn't they even film a movie in Milwaukee to make a movie that was set in Cleveland? They filmed in Milwaukee, that baseball movie, because Milwaukee looked more like Cleveland. Oh, really? Cleveland. <laughs> <Then> Cleveland. <laughs> <laughs> Not a bad place to grow up, though, right? No, it was a it was a good 
place to grow up. I mean, I had access to everything there that I needed, for, you know, from the outside world, from the world outside of Cleveland, I mean. You know, there was a great library, there was a great art museum, and it was a, it was a great place to grow up. Um, it was very diverse. Uh, and then when I was old enough to leave home, uh, there were a lot of lots of artists and musicians and writers and you know creative people to to meet. It was it was fine, but I always sort of knew that I wanted to leave. I mean, I always sort of knew that I wanted to go to New York. I always had a my sights set on New York, not in an ambitious way, just because I just because I love New York. But I've heard that before. I think some people have that. It's like, I'm going to New York. And they know this when they're like in third grade. Yeah, that was me. And you went right after, basically like right after high school or right? No, no, I didn't. I, I moved to this little neighborhood where my father grew up called the South Side in Cleveland, kind of perched on top of the steel mills. And uh, I lived there till I was maybe 23. Then I met a woman from England. I moved to London, chasing her back and forth between London and Cleveland for a couple of years. And then we moved to New York, she and I. And uh, then when she she and I split up in the early 90s, I moved to San Francisco. Oh, really? So I haven't been in New York this whole time. I was in New York for about five years in the 80s and uh, early 90s. And then I moved to San Francisco for quite a long time, like 12 years, and then moved back to New York in... 2005. I feel like your book is so knowing. It feels so authentically New York that it would be easy for you could tell me that you were born and raised. In, oh, that's a nice compliment. Yeah. Thank you. I mean, but <laughs> you have to feel a sense of, I mean, that's, I, I had this, um, I had this parsed for me in a recent conversation on this show where I'm like, well, I've been in Los Angeles longer than I've been anywhere. Like, is this where I'm from now? And it's like, no, I'm from Milwaukee in the Midwest, but my home is in Los Angeles. Like you're definitely a home in New York, I gotta say, uh, at least in so far as you write about it. Well, I feel very at home in New York, but you know, compared to someone like June who grew up in Canarsie, I still feel like kind of a rube. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, she's a much, she's much more savvy than I am and about people and about She's just much more of a New Yorker than I am. I, I feel like a guy from the Midwest. Okay, okay. But fair <laughs> enough. But I think maybe that that's the thing. Like your your New York cred is boosted by the fact that you're with June, who, you know, is she's providing like exactly. kind of daily right. daily right. lessons in how to do it. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> um so the book, you know, the book uh has become a book. And I use the, like, I mean, I, I hate when people use these terms or throw them around. I use the word like masterpiece or um, the way that it feels to me when I feel like something is masterful is that it's the perfect expression of itself on whatever terms it sets out. So if it's like a kid's book, if it's a, if it's a slapstick comedy, if it's a totally. punk song, if it's a you know, like a alt country album, whatever it is, yeah. like, yeah, right. It's, if it, it sets out, if it does what it sets out to do, that's it. And I feel like this book does. Uh, I feel, I hope you feel good about it. I do. Yeah. I do feel that way about this. Yeah. You got it. I do. Like, thank God. I got it. <laughs> I mean, I thought of one thing today that I wish I had put in it. <laughs> you know? Right. Was, 
<laughs> somebody somebody mentioned the band Hot Tuna to me. And I remember June telling me that we uh that when she was a teenager she had the name Hot Tuna sequined on the ass of her favorite jeans. <laughs> like on the back pocket. And uh her father saw that and cut them up and threw them away. And I thought I thought damn it, why didn't I put that in the book, you know? Right. I think with all these years of thinking about it every every morning, how would something like that get by? But, you know, apart from that, I'm very happy with the book, yeah. And uh, June, in real life, is somebody that you knew in your younger years, like that first stint in New York, and then you guys yeah. cross paths again later. So that's, that, that's yeah. true to life as well, the way that it is in the book. Yeah, she was working for a woman named Jane Friedman, who did who managed different music, um, different bands and musicians, and also did press for them. And at that point in the late 80s, they were doing press for a band called Pere Ubu from Cleveland. Um, a couple of the, one of the members of which was a close friend of mine. And so I knew June through them, through Tony, the bass player then, and we, we used to see each other around in clubs and uh, we had a few adventures together. I was married. We were never a couple. Um, we were never romantically involved, but I always thought about her after I left New York and um, could never find out any information about her. She just uh, we, we we didn't know anybody in common anymore. And so it wasn't until I got back to New York that we ran across each other again. That scene in the in the station. There's a couple. Yes. There's a couple times you saw. Well, there's a couple. Yeah, we saw each other in a subway station, and I looked very different because I had lost a lot of my hair, and uh, and because it had been 20 years, and uh, we just kind of stopped and weren't quite sure, or she wasn't quite sure it was me. Anyway, we didn't talk. Then I saw her again in a Whole Foods when I was with a girlfriend, and you know, so I didn't approach her. But I never stopped thinking about her, and then, and then I ran into a mutual friend and who arranged this dinner with us, as as it's told in the book. Wow! And we took off from there. Meant to be. Yeah. So many things <laughs> meant to be, Mike. I uh, I'm happy for you, and I love. Uh, I hope June is happy with how she she is rendered on the page. What a loving portrait you paint of her. Um, like the reader falls in love with her and that's, that's about as good as it could get. I would write. I mean, that's like, uh, I don't know, like her, like the whole world that you're portraying, all these characters are so easy to fall in love with Jane, Lou, Philly, you know, right. these are people that, um, uh, <laughs> that I have great affection for after reading the book and that, I'm, that doesn't I'm always happen. I'm really glad. No, of course not. But I'm, re I'm really, really glad that you feel that way. It's exactly what I would have. It's it's the most that I could hope for. Are you working on another book? I always ask people this. No pressure if you're just enjoying like reveling in this one. But if like is is there something else cooking? Oh no, you got to always be writing. I'm yeah, I'm writing the things down and putting them in a file. Same same as always. And I'm envisioning that I'll write something kind of similar to this. Um, you know, maybe even with the same characters, but focusing on on different ones i'd like to write i'd like to write more about jane she has a lot of stories and uh 
there are a couple of other people in Jacket Weather that are sort of mentioned in passing that I'd like to focus on a little more closely. So, uh, yeah, I think I'm thinking about something else sort of along these lines, but set in spring uh-huh. and maybe a little less linear. <laughs> well, I think that, uh, you know, as I sit here pondering, I hope that you do. And the reason is that these are wonderful characters. This mode that you found feels like, I don't know, very well realized. It's, you should be writing in this way and about these things and about these people. But what I also was just thinking is that the fact that you're writing from a vantage of being um, in middle age and having spent a long amount of time in a place, even though it was interrupted, and and there are characters who have, li- you know, are lifers in New York. Yeah, June is one. What I like about that as a reader is that, as a portrait of place, like if these, if you were to write multiple books in this mode, let's. Just, I'm just, you know, I'm just yeah. spitballing here. But if you were to do that, I think the span of time that you're able to cover through the lens of these characters does something wonderful to capture a place. Cause you can jump around in time a lot. You know, you do that in jacket weather wonderfully where, you know, man, you're back in the eighties in those clubs and yeah, you know, you, there's great little anecdotes. These, I love the musical anecdotes about, I mean, who is it, you know, Bowie and, Nico, maybe. Nico, yeah, yeah, yeah. What was it? What What was she saying? Oh, he took the money out of my boot. <laughs> like this great, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> these great stories. But I mean, like it just puts you there. And uh, I don't know. I feel like that's valuable is what I, I guess is the word I would use to describe it. It's valuable to be able to try to... Um, capture this stuff capture, before it's gone. Capture it before it's gone. Exactly. And, uh, and it... You know, it, it's it's that, you know, it's it's not enough to just live there, but it's also they're, they're good people. They're good lenses, you know? These are good lenses through which to right, see right. New York. Like if I'm going to see New York through somebody's eyes, uh, you could do a lot worse than seeing it through, like, June and Jane's eyes or, you know what I'm saying? Like, people who've been there and right. have lived the lives that they've led and seen the New York that they've seen, you know? Right, and who, who you know, talking to some of those some of these people is, uh, you know, you're tapping into a, a living, a vein of living history. Right. Right. Um, so yeah, that's, uh, so in thinking about who I might want in this next book, I'm, that's, that's how I'm thinking about it. Awesome. What those people give me access to. All right. Well, I will look forward to it. I've, I enjoyed the book and I appreciate you taking the time to talk with me. Oh, it's been a real pleasure. It's really fun talking to you. Well, congrats. Um, you know, congrats on the book and best of luck on the next one. And my best to June and Jane and uh, Lou. <laughs> give them all my best. <laughs> I will give them all your breaths, best breath. <laughs> Thank you. All right, there we have it. That is Mike DeCapity and his novel, Jacket Weather, is out there from Soft Skull Press. You can find him on Instagram. Again, the novel is called Jacket Weather. Go get your copy right now. Trust me on this one. 
It's a romantic book. It'll make you feel things. Makes you feel good. Makes you feel like you're alive. The Other People podcast is offered freely. The entire archive of this show is available to you, the listener, for free. You can listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, YouTube, whatever you like. The whole thing is there for you. Hundreds and hundreds of episodes. If you like this show, if you get something from it, if you listen regularly, I hope you'll consider supporting the show at patreon.com slash other PPL pod. That's Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash other PPL pod for as little as $1 a month. Just throw a dollar in the hat every month, $3, $5, whatever you can swing. Help keep the show going. If you have thoughts for me, you can email me at letters at other PPL.com, letters at other PPL.com. You can follow the show on social media at other PPL on Twitter or at other PPL.podcast on Instagram. The show's official website is other PPL.com. Don't forget, too, about the Other People app. Once again, if you have it, I think in particular if you have it on an iPhone, delete it and then re-upload it at the App Store. It's free. The app is free. It's a great way to listen. And uh, again, if you're a book blogger, journalist, critic, podcaster, and you want a galley of my upcoming novel, Be Brief and Tell Them Everything, just email me, letters at otherppl.com. It's coming out next May. All right? More soon. 